Hello everyone and welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. My name is Will Duffin and I'm joined today by mountaineer, author and professional speaker, Kathy O'Dowd. Kathy, how the devil are you? Ah, bored. <laughs> Strapped at home, staring out of the window at the mountains. But other than that, you know, lucky, safe and set up at home. Good, good. And you're joining us today from your home in Andorra in the beautiful uh, Pyrenees Mountains. Uh, I am. The mountains are lovely, but Andorra, like Spain, is under one of the strictest quarantines in the world at the moment. So we don't even get the, the hour of exercise window. We get nothing. That must be a huge change for you, someone that's used to being out and about in the mountains, traveling uh, around, doing speaking engagements to be in full lockdown. Uh, what a huge transition to have to make. Yes. If I'd had even a day or two of warning, the first thing I would have gone and done is went by a treadmill um, to have at home. I think I really miss just cardiovascular exercise over time. It just walking would, would be great. Walking, running, hiking, anything. I mean, you know, at home sort of strength building or yoga or whatever it is it is okay but it's it's not quite the same as just hours up on your feet and i stare out of the window at the forests and the mountains and i really miss that yeah one challenge i find not being able to get outdoors is getting out of phobial vision i think a lot of people are staring at screens all day and the thing about being in the mountains is just this the sense of space that you just cannot recreate in your living room Yes, at least I have I have terraces, so I've been doing lots of outdoor DIY around the house just to be doing physical things outside. And I can sort of stand on my balconies and stare at the forest, but I can't get to them. Yeah, oh, I just think you can see them, but you can't touch them. <laughs> and I, I'm, uh, what is it about the, the Pyrenees that drew you there? Well, I'm South African, and although I very much wanted to move to Europe, I also wanted sunshine and that whole northern European thing with the low gray sky, you feel you can reach up and touch right through the winters. I'd find that very hard going. So I think the Pyrenees is this combination of being in the mountains with snow. I mean, the snow's not as good as it used to be. There's no doubt we're seeing the effects of, of climate change, of warming, but still with a winter where you can ski and you can climb all year round and the sun shines most days, and it's just this wonderful, inviting mountain playground. Like, I really like living here. I, I couldn't agree more. I've been to the Pyrenees a few times. My wife and I, a few years ago, did sections of the GR10. And I've also walked uh, one of the Freedom Trails across from France to Spain, which was one of the routes uh, that the prisoners of war took in, in the Second World War to escape the Nazis um, through, through the mountains. And it's uh, just, it's got a real unique magic to it. And it's so quiet. I couldn't believe it. In, in the middle of the summer, there's hardly anyone there. Well, certainly if you you know put in like half an hour of effort to get away from the car parks, there is this incredible wilderness and so much you can do on foot, on skis, um, canyoning, rock climbing, alpinism. There's just so much here. Yes. Yeah. Great, great part of the world. So for anyone listening that uh, hasn't come across Kathy before. She's the real deal. So she's the first woman to climb Everest from both the Nepalese and Tibetan side. Indeed, the first South African to climb Everest. 
She's also part of the team uh, to do the first ascent of Nanga Parbat via the Mazino Ridge, uh, which we'll talk about. She's been able to successfully develop her love of adventure into a career as an author and inspirational speaker. Uh, and she's spoke, spoken in over 44 countries on six different continents. She's a published author. One of her books, Just for the Love of It, uh, is available. Uh, and yeah, just a, a fantastic human being. And it's a, a huge privilege to, to have you on the podcast, Kathy. Thank you, Will. So I think the um, the first thing I'd like to talk about is is obviously Everest. Uh, that that's the 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 big mountain, the the one that the whole mountaineering world is, uh, and indeed the uh, media on, on the whole are, are totally obsessed with. What is the obsession with Everest? It's the ultimate bucket list challenge. I think that's the bottom line. It's the highest point in the world. You're literally standing on the summit. You're the highest person in the world with both your feet still on the ground. And, and yes, there's something magical about that. I also think at this point, there's something else which makes me slightly less comfortable, which is that Everest has become a shorthand for this incredible achievement, you know, in the footsteps of Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. But increasingly, people want the achievement by the easiest way possible, which has led to our modern um, Everest phenomenon of basically a fixed line from base camp to the summit, a queue of climbers, you know, midlife executives turning up with a guide on one shoulder and a Sherpa on the other carrying all their equipment and just being shuffled to the top because they're looking for the photo that says, I did this thing without actually having done the thing. Because the thing is still cast as if they are pioneering like Hillary. The reality is they're being shuffled in a queue um, where all the choice and risk assessment and kind of depth of knowledge that lets you make safe choices has been outsourced, financially outsourced to somebody else. And actually, that's the skill of mountain climbing. If, yes, physically, of course, it's physical, but that's kind of entry point. You've got to be strong enough, fit enough to do this. But what actually makes the difference between clients and true self-sufficient climbers is knowledge and skill and experience. And that's a little harder to kind of show in a photograph, but that's actually the, 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 the achievement. And of course, that's all been outsourced to Sherpas and guides who are being paid to do it. And when you were, so you've attempted Everest four times in total, is that correct? Yes. And two of those were successful, once from the north and one from the south. Um, and this was during the year of the 90s. And I understand that was really a, a, a pivotal time in the history of uh, mountaineering on Everest, because that was when these commercial uh, operations were really starting to take off. Uh, and this um, and lots of perhaps less seasoned and experienced climbers were being uh, offered the opportunity to pay their money, their 65,000 US dollars to join a trip with minimal experience. And um, and that was really the start of the commercial era of Everest that we see today. Is, is that, would you agree with that? Yes, but not quite. Because you know, there's a sort of a narrative 
that say 1996, which is the, the year that Everest kind of became famous in the modern age and is the year of my first Everest expedition. Oh, they, look at that as an example of the mountain being overcrowded and the people on the teams being inexperienced. It's got nothing on what is going on now. It was, you know, a factor of 10 less crowded than it is now. And frankly, most of those people on those teams were still actually reasonably experienced climbers. It's just that they couldn't get a team together of their own, so they took this opportunity to buy a place on a commercial team. Uh, what we've got right now isn't better. It's exponentially worse. And it's built off that early era. To put, I think, that moment in time and place, so I was on a national team in a slightly old-fashioned way. So we, we had no guides. We, we did have Sherpas on the team. But this was not a guided team. We were a group of climbers, kind of amateur but um, kind of experienced climbers who put a team together and went to try and climb the mountain. But it was probably the first year, one of the first years, where they allowed a lot of teams onto the same route. That was a big change. So we were there with a mix of other private teams like ourselves and the first of these big commercial teams being led by kind of famous guides. It was also the first year that you could run a website. So I think we were literally the, the first time websites from Basecamp were a thing. We were only about 18 months into the internet being a thing for ordinary people, you know, not, not just universities or defense or whatever. And that meant that when things went wrong in 1996, it was the first time the media had ever had direct satellite connection to teams on Everest while stuff was going down. So it was the first time Everest ever went viral in a modern sense. I mean, it has nothing on today with, you know, social media. And at this point, you can Snapchat your way to the top of Everest. At this point, they they bring in a mast and they actually create a cell for Everest during the really? spring season so wow. that you can take your mobile yeah. phone uh, up the mountain. So again, you know, this is not a patch on what happens now, but it was the first viral moment of the modern age, uh, the first worldwide media event where Everest became a thing. Why do you think, Kathy, that that, that year, 96, that famous storm uh, that's been become an integral part of Everest mythology, you know, it's been um, immortalised in John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, Anatoly Borkweed went on to write The Climb, and now, of course, Hollywood got involved. What was it about that year that really captured the public's imagination? Because if you look at the the numbers, the death toll on Everest for that storm was eight, uh, for that season was only 15, but 2018, 2019, we're still seeing deaths in the double figures. So that in itself wasn't exceptional, but there's something different going on there in 96, wasn't there, that that really, that really allowed that to, to become the year? I think there was a little bit of a perfect storm but not not in the weather sense, entirely metaphorically. There have been worse disasters in the Himalaya than that season. But the truth is, when everybody dies, nobody gets to come home and do the media interviews and write the best-selling book and be a consultant on the Hollywood movie and you know, whatever it is. So the kind of disasters that make headlines require survivors and preferably 
American survivors, uh, if you wanted to go kind of worldwide Hollywood level, and um, preferably articulate survivors and famous survivors. And somehow 1996 had all of that. So it already had this base infrastructure. For the first time, we've got websites on the mountain. For the first time, we've got direct, direct satellite links into teams so media can follow in real time as against the old-fashioned way where you came back six weeks or three months or whatever it was later. Uh, for the first time, we kind of had helicopter access. So after the storm, we actually had uh, the first helicopters to come in weren't rescue helicopters for victims. They were Japanese news crews. Um, so again, beginning of the modern media age. But then it's about the personalities. Two big commercial teams being led by two famous guides one from New Zealand, one from America, uh, high international profiles. And then these early commercial teams you know, had some fairly famous personalities on them. So we've got all the castings of a soap opera, basically. Uh, and then we've got the famous journalist, John Krakauer, who's there uh, and is you know, part of the story but survives, so he gets to write the book, which, of course, is backed by Time Warner, uh, so it gets all the marketing uh, clout that goes with that. And you know, there are a couple of really gripping personal interest stories like um, uh, the doctor who nearly is left for dead and then crawls back to camp with the, yes, the terrible injuries. So it's got all the interest and drama. And as I said, it's got articulate survivors in the beginning of our very hyper-connected uh, media age. And all of that somehow just gave you this perfect storm. That's a one of the fascinating things about um, all the folklore mountaineering. No one wants to hear about a trip that went well. It's all about when things, the shit really hit the fan. That's when we're interested. Absolutely. And I mean, that's the reality of a good story. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, I write and uh, I make a living as a speaker. And I'm well aware that the vast majority of my expeditions, nobody's interested. Th those of us who went are interested. We made a plan. We executed the plan. It went fine. We came home. Good trip. You get about five minutes to show your photos to some friends before they're not interested anymore. Yeah, it would, so it would have boosted your career as a speaker significantly if you really had some, some uh some real adversity with it. something had really gone wrong for you, do you think? Well, I've had two dramatic big expeditions. One was the, the first Everest expedition, and the second one, of course, was, was Nangipabat. And they remain kind of my key case studies when I talk right. to corporate clients. The, actually, the unsuccessful attempts are the ones you prefer to talk about. Is that... Well, no, what you, uh, no, preferably, you actually do want it to be successful. What you really need is a great objective, incredibly risky, followed by great disaster, preferably along with infighting with the team. People really like that. That's the basis of reality television, basically, is infighting within the group. So you want external disaster plus internal infighting, almost failure, preferably somebody on the brink of death, and then somehow you've got to pull it all together and succeed. That's kind of your ideal storyline. So a, a bit of a bit of jeopardy in the middle, but so, somehow there's a, there's a happy ending as some kind of tri triumphant uh, uh, kind of conclusion to it all. Uh, absolutely. And the it's... thing is, real life does not follow that. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and uh, it can be, it's problematic in that it does leave the general public assuming that all mountaineers are suicidal maniacs. 
and the whole thing is desperately dangerous and uncontrolled and therefore potentially selfish. And it's like, no, you're seeing like 0.1% of how most expeditions actually go down. That is not what mostly happens. That's not how it plays out. And the kind of people who do this are not kind of daredevil adrenaline seekers, you know, playing Russian roulette with their lives. They're actually very kind of sober, focused, highly trained, pragmatic professionals. And that's just not a story that's all that interesting. Yes. So um, sticking with uh, Everest for the moment, um, let's have a think about a little bit of Everest history. Now, you're in a unique perspective because you've climbed Everest from both sides and that the first successful uh, confirmed ascent of Everest was in 1953 by Hillary and Norgay by the South Route. However, 30 years before them, Mallory and Irvine attempted Everest and we never got confirmation that they reached the summit and debate rages to this day as to whether they actually reached the summit. What do you think, Cathy? Did Mallory and Irvine, were they the first people to stand on the roof of the world? I think it's incredibly unlikely. Yeah. Why is that? And, well, I think the debate rages because people like the romance of it, uh, not because I actually think there's any terribly compelling evidence that, that they reached the top. So I've climbed the route that they climbed. And I think what is hard to get your head around is how incredibly different it is to be the first as against the second. And the thing is, it's about knowing where the route goes. These mountains are enormous. I mean, Everest is absolutely vast. And when you don't know where the route goes, there are a thousand, a hundred thousand, frankly, possible different combinations of ways you could go. And the vast majority of them are not going to work. So when you get up to the, the top bit of the ridge, the north ridge of Everest, uh, so what we know about Mallory and Irvine is kind of where they were last sighted going up from teammates down below using a, a telescope, and then where the bodies were found. Uh, have we now found both bodies? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. sure. Not We've sure. only found one. So Okay, mm. okay, I'm not sure about that. Mm. Uh, and we don't know what kind of happened in between. But the thing is, uh, high up there, you've got this kind of broken shale-like rock and it, it breaks in kind of horizontal strata. So you've got what are like a set of long, narrow horizontal ledges with little cliffs in, in between them. And if you're trying to find a way through, you're going to be walking your way along one of these ledges, hoping that it'll go as far as possible and then there'll be a break that'll let you climb up onto the next ledge and keep on going. And the way the route is now climbed is the truth is none of those ledges go through. And the only way through is to climb what is famously known as the second step. And the second step is in, an incredibly difficult piece of technical rock climbing. It's so difficult that the Chinese, who are the first confirmed team to have climbed the route that way, brought a ladder with them. And everybody still climbs it with a ladder. It's no longer the Chinese ladder, it's a more modern version, but nobody actually does, you know, proper technical solo rock climbing up that face. Everybody climbs up the ladder. And of course, Mallory and Irvin didn't have a ladder on their rucksack just in case. 
So I am sort of 99.99% convinced that Mallory and Irvin spent their time going backwards and forwards along these different ledges trying to find the one that would lead them through. Because the last thing you were going to do in that moment is turn around and go, look, oh, look, here's a kind of an E15A rock face at 8,800 meters. Let's try soloing up that in our, you know, wooden, our hobnail leather yes, boots yes. and our tweed. You know. <laughs> yes. It was not going Oil to happen. Oil skins, yeah. You... Yeah. So I so, think they went backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards yeah. looking for a route through couldn't find one, realized they were running out of time and getting tired, um, turned around, and on the way down, it looks, given where the body, Mallory's body was found, it looks like they slipped, probably making a mistake from exhaustion yes. and fell to their deaths. Yes, because in, in the early 1900s, uh, the British, we spent a, long, a lot of, invested a lot of resources in surveying Everest. We were the first um, nation to work out how high it was and to even establish that it was the highest point in, on earth. And uh, I think there was a lot of pride, national pride invested in getting a British mountaineer on the set. It was almost assumed that that would happen. And I think a lot of, um, uh, a lot of our folklore is built around believing that they got there uh, when in fact it was the the, the Kiwi uh, Hillary that that, uh, that was on top first. Although it was a British expedition, it was technically a New Zealander that, that got to the top. And I think a lot of well, no, was, British on, people struggled Hillary with that. It, it was Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. Of course. And uh, the other thing that gets yes. forgotten is that Tenzing Norgay was on Everest on the south side the year before with the Swiss. And the Swiss got well above 8,000 meters. The Swiss got a long way up the final summit ridge. So it came very close to being a Swiss first ascent. And the next year, when this British-led kind of international Commonwealth team turned up, it was Tenzing Norgay who had climbed kind of 95% of the mountain already via that route. And then it was he and the New Zealander Hillary who are the ones who actually got to the top. You know, we, we, build, we build on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. And so a little bit of our national pride kind of forgets to acknowledge that other people, other countries were there as well. And what are your perspectives on the kind of national pride, the, the way that um, we, we're all taking the flags of our countries and sticking them on different remote parts of the planet and trying to get there first? It, what, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, I think it's, I don't know. I mean, to some extent, I got there. My opportunity came on the first South African Everest expedition. And you know, I only got onto that team because they decided to sort of, the sponsor decided to sex up the media coverage by finding a token woman to add to the team. And I was the one who ended up being that token woman. Uh, so that was my kind of the lucky break that launched my subsequent mountaineering and, and speaking career. And I'm, I'm very grateful for it. So, you know, I got there on the back of kind of national pride and, and flag waving. Uh, and yet, what I really like about mountaineering is the international community. And I think, to, at least in the West, flag waving has largely gone out of style, partly because all the national firsts have probably been done. Uh, it's it's going on in other countries. Being the first of your country to climb Everest is very much a thing. And I mean, I don't know. The world moves on. And the last thing you want to do is be the person going like, well, in my day, it was all so much better. 
because you know my day was you know, a transition moment. So I've no doubt. Yeah, you know, well, I know that people like Reinhold Messner are very much oh well in their day, which is like whatever it was, fifteen years earlier, it was better, and so forth and so forth. The world moves on. Absolutely. So, Kathy, let's move away from Everest just for a moment and let's talk about a different style of mountaineering. And this is Alpine style. And your first ascent of Nanga Parbat via the Mazino Ridge, there's a team of six of you. And that, that was a very different style of climbing, wasn't it? Because you weren't supported by a huge team of Sherpas. You weren't having resupplies. You were carrying everything with you for, for, for that. To tell us about that, that trip. It sounds absolutely incredible. So... I think it's important to lay out the groundwork very briefly between siege style and alpine style. I mean, people now look at Everest and the commercial teams on Everest and assume that's mountaineering. It's not. Well, I, well, it is. But it's a very old-fashioned style. And nobody who is actually a professional... Uh, professional is not quite the right word. Professional somehow means you earn money as a guide or something, or you're a sponsored athlete but kind of a full-time, highly skilled climber is climbing big mountains siege style with fixed ropes and fixed camps and going up and down and, and depositing loads and that kind of thing. All climbing ascents that have any respect within the international climbing community are essentially done alpine style. And that means turning up, yes, you do have to acclimatize. You're going to have to go up and down somewhere. So, you know, that has to be acknowledged. Uh, but the idea is to pick up a rucksack with all the equipment you need and climb from the bottom as far as you can possibly get, which may be the top, it may not be the top, and then get yourself back down again. So there's no fixed ropes, there's no resupply. And it's obviously much more difficult. It's also much more committing because there's much less... You, you, you've got much thinner margins of safety because you can't resupply with equipment, which means your medical kit is probably duct tape and ibuprofen <laughs> because, you know, there's not a lot of space in the rucksack and a lot of it where it's gone to food and gas and, um, and your climbing equipment. Uh, it's, it's much more difficult, uh, but it's also much more flexible because you do have everything on your back. You can change your mind, you can change the route, you can try something different, you can go up, down, sideways. Uh, but it's, it's, it's hard. So the point about this expedition, I'd actually frankly thought I was done with high Himalayan climbing until I got a, a Facebook messenger message from a, a friend saying like, what do you think, do you want to join this team? It'll be a laugh. I was like, really, <laughs> really? I had a look at what he was talking about, like, okay, Nanga Parbat, number nine in the world, and the Mazeno Ridge, which has never been climbed. Teams have tried. I think, I think at that point, kind of 10 teams across 35 years have tried, and no one had got to the top. You know, like, yeah, okay, this is some kind of laugh. But the fact remains, I mean, he wasn't wrong. I'd never climbed. In I mean, that, that, takes, that takes a certain kind of self-belief. When 10 teams have failed before you, what made you think you were the team that were going to succeed when they'd all failed? Oh, I think that's a very interesting point. I didn't think we were going to succeed. I thought we were going to fail. I thought we were going to be number 11 in failing. But that's not why climbers climb. They don't climb to stand on top, you know, uh, waving the flag and puffing their chests out. We climb because climbing is interesting. 
And I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding about what mountaineering is about. It's not about standing on the top. That's fun. It's the cherry on top of the cake. The expedition is definitely more satisfying if you get to the top, but that's not why you went. We go because the process of climbing is interesting. And actually, although failing in the kind of the media sense, failing as in you didn't get to the summit, is disappointing, it's also interesting in the sense that you are probably failing. And let's kind of redefine failing. Every expedition has two goals. Get to the top, come home alive. There might be other ones, but those are probably your two base goals. And therefore, failing actually means something has gone seriously wrong and you've swapped all focus onto goal number two, which is get home alive, and now you've got to work out how to do that. And we, you know, we train. We train for disaster. We have remote medical wilderness training and we have avalanche rescue training and crevasse rescue training and all sorts of things. And to some extent, a disaster where you're now having to extract your team is an interesting moment to finally get to use all your training and see if you can work out how to think your way out of this problem. So getting your team off a mountain in one piece, which of course doesn't always work, can be incredibly satisfying. And you can come away thinking, whoa, I actually remember the training, worked out how to implement it, managed to rectify the mistakes because you will make mistakes. And we got ourselves out. So the media might not call it a success, but the team members may well be sitting in the bottom thinking, whoa, yes, we pulled that together. I'm happy with that. I'm proud of that. And so that's kind of part of what makes climbing interesting. Sorry, I really didn't go off point on that, but I think it's important. Yes, yes. And in that particular expedition, you managed to get two of your team members to the summit. Um, but they, I, I, as with all mountaineering, they had some degree of difficulty on the way down. T- tell me about that. Well, in some ways, this expedition was a, a perfect example of this. So we set up with six people, uh, two goals, get to the top, get home alive. Now, because the ridge itself, the Mazena Ridge, is incredibly long, it's like five miles long, and it's roughly at 7,000 meters high. So you're going to spend a week living, camping, climbing at 7,000 meters before you even get to finally, you know, try and do the last 1,000 meters to get to the summit, which is 8,125. Did you have bottled oxygen? Oh, God, no. Alpine style? Yeah, Alpine style. There's no (laughs) space. There's no weight allowance uh, for oxygen. So absolutely not. Uh, and so the problem with this ridge being so long, when you come back down, you're not going to come down the way you went up. It's too long. That makes it considerably more difficult. You're going to be going down a route you have not climbed up, you have not seen before. So that means you're kind of moving forwards all the time. Uh, that makes the descent even that much more difficult, that much more committing. So we, we got ourselves all the way along the ridge. We had a plan of 10 days in that basically 10 days food is what we could manage to pack and still lift the rucksacks. Because it's not just 10 days of food, it's gas, no running water. So all water for drinking and for cooking has to be melted from snow, which means it's about fuel. When you run out of fuel, you run out of water. 
that's even more serious than running out of food. Do you know how much your rucksacks weighed? Not exactly, but my guess is about 26, 27 kilos. I mean, it was wow. just obviously. What does that What does that kind of weight do to your back when you're trying to negotiate it along the kind of knife edge ridge, that, that kind of terrain? That must be. It it's it's awful. I mean, that's a reason why I hope. I, no, not there's no hope involved here. I will not be doing another expedition at that level of commitment. By the time we got well into the expedition, I mean, obviously the rucksacks are getting lighter as you go because you're eating the food, you're using the gas, but still, uh, my back was hurting every minute of every day. Trying to sleep, trying to climb, sitting up, lying down, moving, not moving. And I just had that sinking feeling that I'm doing damage here that is going to be permanent. Uh, and I don't think I did, but I've got no desire to try that again. Um, so, yeah, it was it was brutal, um, at least for me. It was brutal trying to carry that kind of weight. So we had a 10-day plan based on the food and the gas. And we ended up, so that's six days to the top, two days to get down, two days in reserve. The plan was a complete fantasy. I mean, it was a well-prepared fantasy, but it was a fantasy. And we ended up making our first bid for the summit on day 11. So, okay, we've, we've lost everything. We've lost our days in reserve. We've lost our days to get down. We make our first summit bid on day 11, and we get it wrong. We don't pick the right route. We end up in a dead end facing a rock wall we can't climb. And we pull back to the high cap. And now what do you do? So at the end of day 11, there is virtually no food left. We're down to a few energy bars. There's some gas, but it's only going to last a few more days. Do you put it into going down a route we don't know, we've never seen before, or do we keep on trying? And effectively, we split the team. And this has to be a personal choice. Mountain teams at this level, there isn't, there isn't a leader ordering, you know, giving orders like a general or something like that. These are highly experienced individuals putting their lives on the line. It has to be individual choices. So we had two people who wanted to try again and four people, myself included, who wanted to put what strength they had left into getting down safely. Uh, and so that's what we did. We, we left uh, Rick and Sandy with, with all the food um, uh, that we had left. And then four of us spent two days climbing down a route we'd never seen before. And we got the line wrong in the mist and ended up on a piece of mountain that no one has ever climbed because everyone else is too sensible. And we had a fairly epic descent, but we made it work. Although one of the team did break his ankle in the process. Uh, and we did get avalanched. Um, but apart from that, it was fine. <laughs> and Rick and Sandy then went back up uh, with, you know, within a day or two, no food. Uh, and eventually they couldn't even get the stove to work, so they were on almost no water. And it did take them, oh God, it was 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, another six days to get to the top and get down, because of course it doesn't take two days to get down when you're exhausted. It takes a lot longer. So they eventually got down on the morning of day 18. Wow. Absolutely, you know, God, I think epic is definitely the word. Yeah, it is the word. <laughs> And people ask me if I regret turning down, to, you know, giving up. And I do and I don't. I don't regret making the choice on the morning of day 12. 
It was the right choice. I no longer had the physical strength, the mental focus to keep on trying to climb. And of course, the thing about being on a team is if you climb yourself to the point of absolute physical collapse, you've just endangered your teammates because there's no rescue. So your teammates either have to choose to step over your dying body to keep on trying to climb, which they are not going to do, or now they have to give up the dream and risk their lives to try and save you. So you need to turn back while you can still get down on your own two feet. It's very interesting. I think mountaineering is quite unique in this sense. In all walks of life, we're told never give up. You know, you must persevere until the end. But of course, in mountaineering, uh, sometimes giving up is absolutely the right thing to do. Oh, no, give, never give up is such nonsense. It's, it's just one of those silly <laughs> slogans because everybody needs to give up. You know, all those startup entrepreneurs who are burning their way through all the venture capital, at some point, they need to give up. And they probably need to do it before they've burned through all the capital and, and you know, <laughs> left all their staff in, in trouble. Give, giving up, knowing when to give up. And you can call it pivoting if you want, which I think is what venture capitalists do. Or, you, you know, whatever. Giving up is one of life's great skills. because It's, it's, it's okay to give up sometimes. We are not going to succeed at everything. I think, think about it. If we succeed at every single thing we've ever tried, we haven't tried anything terribly ambitious because you know, difficult, difficult stuff comes with no guarantees. Being a pioneer, it's highly likely you'll take the wrong route and get it wrong. And, you know, and we talk about serial entrepreneurs and talk about, oh, look at you know, all that string of failures before they succeeded. Well, a lot of people never actually get that last success. All they get was a string of failures. So you need to think about what did I learn? Why did, it, you know, when, did I give up well? Did I learn something from failure and move on. Now, giving up is a great skill. And um, one thing is certainly a 96 disaster, one uh, fa factor that it, it is thought to have played into why that all unraveled when this storm was approaching was this idea of the, having a turn back time and the this concept of summit fever where uh, you're so close to the top, you can almost reach it. It's just there, but you, you, that, that, needing the self-discipline to know when you have to turn back, when you're you're exposing yourself to risk. T tell us a little bit about summit fever. Is that something that you've experienced and, and you've witnessed? And if so, how have you been able to, to handle that in, in yourself? Hmm. I agree about summit fever. I have reservations about the turn back time uh, set up. So I've, not ever made uh, bad choices based around summit fever. I think largely because I'm not climbing to try and conquer summits. I'm climbing because I enjoy climbing. And I'm also cautious, which is probably why I've never been you know, a truly world-class mountaineer. I've been more likely to be the one who's going to turn back. And that's kind of okay, because it means I've reached this point in my climbing career with absolutely no injuries. And, and still alive. And still so, alive. And, you know, got all my fingers and all my toes. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I'm more interested in climbing until I'm 95, you know, in some form than I am in any one particular mountain. And I do think that's made me less successful. But I also think it's made me healthier and safer. So, you know, pick your poison in, in a sense. Uh, so 
I've, I've always turned back. I've turned, and it's not just those big mountains. I've turned back on various mountains and I've turned back, you know, skiing in the back country in Andorra because we look at slopes and go like, yeah, no, no, avalanche risk and, and so on. And as I said, I, I quite, I think I, perhaps I rationalize it by being, I'm kind of interested in the process of deciding when and how to turn back and doing it safely. So, you know, a good turn back is a win, actually. Um, the trouble with the uh, theory of the turn-back time, it's not that it's wrong to say there need to be absolute limits. Uh, there absolutely have to be limits because the thing about mountain climbing, it's not like a marathon. In a marathon, you could literally run until you more or less tumble down onto the side of the road. If you can still manage to pull out your mobile phone and call a taxi, you can get yourself out of that situation. In mountaineering, you're going to have to climb back down the mountain. You've got to turn back well before you're actually at your physical and mental limit because you've got to have the capacity physically to still move and mentally to still make decisions. That's made really hard because how much do you need to leave to turn back? If everything goes right on the turn back, you only need to leave a small amount. But like our descent on Nangapabat, if you're going to get avalanched and have a member of your team break his ankle, you're going to need a lot more capacity mentally and physically to deal with those situations while still continuing to descend. So you don't know. And I think the point about the turn back time is it's actually a way of, for guides to control ego-driven clients who don't want to be told that, look, the truth is you're not good enough, you're not fast enough, you didn't do enough training, you aren't fit enough, you know, you're never going to get to the summit so in, in time and I can't, as a guide, I'm not going to be able to get you down. So you get clients to sign off on if we are not at the summit by 2 p.m. or say or 3 p.m. or whatever it is, that's a magic hour and everyone will turn into a pumpkin if we don't turn back. And it lets guides go like, look, dude, get real. Look at your watch. It's 2 p.m. You signed a piece of paper. It's over. Mountaineers, real mountaineers, need to be a lot more subtle than that because 2 p.m. might be way too late. If the weather has turned, the weather doesn't know that you made some deal about 2 p.m. and some time zone. If the snow conditions are increasingly sketchy, they don't care about your time. But it works the other way as well. 2 p.m. might be too early. If whatever it is that you know slowed you down has been solved successfully, maybe it was an equipment failure, you know, whatever it is, you've solved it, and the weather is still good, and your team is looking strong, you know, you're not actually going to turn into a pumpkin. Uh, Western climbers tend to start at night and then try and get to the top earlier in the day and come down in the afternoon. Some, some of the eastern countries are more likely to climb in daylight, start at dawn, and then do the last bit of the descent, which is a route that they know because they went up it in the dark. Rick and Sandy got to the summit of Nangapabat at 6 p.m., and, you know, they want to peel it all for that climb. Uh, so it's not about the magic turn back time. It's about the fact that every hour you need to reassess. Is this still safe? What's the condition of the team? Has the, have snow conditions changed? Has the weather changed? Is there something else? And you need to rerun your calculation about how long you've got, how far you need to go, how well you're doing, how everybody's feeling, and then decide whether you're going to keep on going or whether, whether some or all of you, because splitting teams is a thing. 
I'm going to turn back. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think that whole concept of, of turn back time, uh, it's clearly, is, as you describe it, it's an artificial construct. And uh, it, it, you know, uh, that, that's, that's really changed my, my whole um, perception of that. Um, so we, at the moment, we're living in quite strange times, as, as you know, Cathy, we're in the midst of this global pandemic. And part of this podcast series, we're reaching out to our unique community of adventurous people that are connected to us at World Extreme Medicine. Uh, all these people like you are unified by the fact that you thrive in adversity. And our goal really with, with this podcast series is to share your expertise and insights with a heady mix of ad adventure tales and inspiration and try and tease out any transferable learning that can help uh, our audience, that's medics uh, that are currently on the front line right now, that can help them deal with what, what's going on right now. And I, I fully appreciate you're not medical, Cathy, but you have you've definitely had your fair share of challenges. And I just wondered if we could spend a moment just talking about some of the learning that you've taken from, from your work as a mountaineer and as a, as a public speaker and, and think about how that might help uh, uh, some of, some of the, the medics out there right now. Well, I had a thought to think about this and because I'm very much not a medic and I think what I, what I do in, in, is, is, much smaller and much easier and much less complicated and we chose to do it so it's it kind of different but i think there were a few crossovers one thing that i think is really important to acknowledge and this came to me out of being um in the the team uh, in the big storm that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast 1996 in that big disaster we were the team that didn't leave from the top camp because we thought the weather was unstable and so we were stuck at 8,000 meters in the storm while these other climbers were in trouble trying to get down from the summit. And what I got out of that is a real understanding of what people mean when they talk about the fog of war. When you are in the middle of the disaster, you do not have a bloody clue what is really going on. And it's made considerably more annoying in the modern world by the people who have the most definite ideas about what you should absolutely definitely be doing are normally a thousand miles away in an office somewhere with access to media. And I think right now a lot of the medics around the world are absolutely up to their hairlines in the chaos on fog of war. And they are stuck with being judged in real time on Twitter and on social media and in the media, by not just by journalists who one would hope do a little bit of research, but also by every single person who has access to a social media channel about what they should and shouldn't be doing. And that's just so tough because the people who really know what they should be doing are the ones who also understand that it's very confusing and very difficult and you're doing the best you can. And absolutely, we will look at this pandemic in hindsight and go like, bugger, there are a whole lot of things that turned out to not have been the best possible choice. And we'll look at different countries and compare what they did. And what we should be doing is trying to learn. But what will happen is there'll be a blame game about it and comparison. And, and that's just so unfair to the medics on the front line. 
there's nothing wrong with going like I am, you know, up to my eyes in this and I am not quite sure we're doing the right thing, but we're doing the absolute best we can with the knowledge we've got available right now and the kit we've got available. Shut down the voices who are telling you, you're second guessing everything you're doing. You're a medic, you're trained for this, you're on the front line. Trust yourself and trust your colleagues. I, I can really uh, relate to what you're saying about the fog of war. I think um, it does feel very much uh, like there's very little top-down strategy. Um, there's a huge sense of unease amongst the medical community on how our skills are going to be deployed. And, and our, our way of working has just been shifting from one week to the next. And we all feel in this completely out of control crisis. We're, we're right in the middle of that fog right, right now. I mean, are there any tips that you've got that would help us to regain some sense of personal control to, to really feel like we, we've got a handle on, on, on this, even though we're in the midst of that fog? Well, I think you, you've, you said it, control. Yeah. One of the things that makes us most feel, I think, the most panicky, anxious, vulnerable is a sense of absolute loss of control. And it's, it's real. It's not as if anyone's doing anything wrong to feel out of control. We're out of control because global pandemics aren't a thing. You know, this is the first one... I think almost any of us have really lived through because the previous ones, you know, the coronaviruses in the last 20 years have been, were considerably smaller. Uh, maybe medics in Taiwan feel differently and maybe that's why Taiwan did a better job. But for most of us in the West, this is the first time we've ever lived through this. So we're not wrong for feeling out of control. It is out of control. But what I think really helps is to try and reassert some personal sense of control in a small space. And it can be, frankly, a little bit artificial. But whether it's, you know, managing to get your hands on your own, you know, personal protective equipment, whether it's about setting up some kind of initiative just with your family or with your colleagues in, in your facility where you're doing something proactively, whether it's as, you know, personal as you've just created a routine for yourself that happens in the morning before you go into work and at the end of a shift, something where you said, I designed this and I'm in charge of it as against this is something that is just happening to me, at me. That makes a big difference. I think also the way you think about it, and again, you know, I really do think our experience on the mountains, even though you know it may be personally life-threatening, is much more simple than what, what medics are trying to do right now. But uh, people ask me, uh, oh, you know, when's the moment when you thought, oh my God, I'm about to die? And the answer is never. Actually, maybe once when I abseiled off the end of a rope, but that's because I was probably about to die in the next three seconds. So it was very focused. But on a mountain where things are going wrong in this kind of rolling, ever-worsening situation that plays out over hours and days, I never thought, my God, it's over. I always thought of it as if I was in a tunnel. And you know, normally the tunnel is out here and there's that very big piece of light and you're walking towards the light and that's how it goes. But as the tunnel begins to get tighter, you can choose to look at the darkness, which is getting bigger and bigger, or you can choose to focus onto the light. I mean, the light's getting smaller. But I've always felt I'm working, the light is still there and I'm working my way towards it. 
And that's kind of, I know it's a bit of a mental trick. And I know the darkness is there and it's getting bigger and bigger. But it's been very helpful because it's always positive. It's always yes. proactive. And, and one thing I've certainly taken away from what you've been saying, Kathy, is this idea of being more focused on the process than the ultimate goal or objective. And I think that's going to be really powerful for us because we don't really know where we're going with this planet. The goal is constantly shifting. We don't know whether this peak is going to hit in the next week and then it's all going to calm down or whether there's going to be a series of peaks or what the economic uh, and kind of longer term health fallout from from this is going to be. And so having some kind of goal of let's get through this to the other side is, I think at the moment for me is deeply unhelpful. And I really like your, your, the way that you, um, you conceptualize a challenge around having, having the right skills and focusing on one day at a time and just enjoying the process in that moment. Uh, that's, that's, that's been so powerful. Uh, I agree. I think that's, yeah, it's really helped me when things go wrong. You know, we've, we've, in our different fields, we train for disaster. And the fact is when disaster turns up, it's not much fun, but it is also a chance to take that training and apply it. The thing is not to hold ourselves to some ridiculously high standard. We cannot save, um, well, medics cannot save every coronavirus patient in the world. It's not possible. but what they can do, I guess, is take the training and the skill, uh, take the challenge of a very stressful crisis situation and just apply it to the best of their ability, kind of hour by hour, case by case, patient by patient. And it's not about getting everyone to survive. It's about coming through this, having done the best you can with the, the skills and the resources that you've got. Yes, I think uh, we're really bad at that as as medics. We do hold ourselves to very high standards. Many of us have this kind of hero complex. We we just want to do the best job, and um, there's definitely a lot of perfectionism as well within medicine. And I think we're very are our own harshest critics, uh, and I think that really um, damages us and and really impacts on our effectiveness during crises like this when we're not able to to give the, the high standard of care that we might normally be able to give right, as a function of the, the, the circumstances that we're in. Agreed. And as I said earlier on, it's not just all of that. It's been judged by people from the outside who don't understand. Right. Uh, you have the loudest the, voices. The difficulty. Exactly. And that yeah. makes it harder. So yes, refining a sense of, of kind of personal control and a sense of small success, uh, whether it's just, you know, surviving that shift and having done a decent job. Um, and I'd also, I think, like to acknowledge that when we talk about control, it's easier, I think, I'm afraid I'm treading into a field I don't know a lot about, but I would have guessed it's easier for a doctor to say, I chose this. I went into this field, you know, to do great things and save lives and, and survive great health disasters. But there are great many people in the health field who aren't doctors. And they aren't even necessarily nurses. They're at-home health aides, and they're the people cleaning the hospitals. And there are a lot of people who are health workers one way or another who are probably doing it because it's a job and they needed a wage. And there's always work in the health care industry. And they have a lot less control. It's, it's, it's harder to say, I went into this to save lives and do heroic things based on years and years of fancy medical training. 
And it's harder for them, I think, to find personal control because they have a lot less. They're at the bottom of the ladder of healthcare providers. But they're incredibly important um, in the situation. And I think the challenge there is the, is the same, is just to try and create a little bit of personal space where you have a sense of control over something within this environment. And then to take the time to just be proud of each thing done to the best of your ability, no matter how frustrating and limiting and unappreciated your efforts are and how limited your resources are. Yeah, so let's let's try and just take each day at a time and just uh, and celebrate those small successes rather than look up to the summit, whatever that even is. I mean, I don't even know what the summit looks like right now. It's <laughs> well and truly in the clouds. Um, but I, yeah, I think that's some really sound advice, Cathy. And um, let's talk a little bit about the role that curiosity plays. I know that's a key part of your who you are and, and what's driven you to uh, up these in, uh, incredibly high mountains. But, uh, but how has curiosity helped you get through some of the, the toughest moments? Well, I think curiosity has always driven why I climb. Uh, I don't look at a mountain and go like, I need to stand on top of that. I, I, I need to conquer that. I look at a place or a challenge and go like, I wonder how that would, what that would be like. I wonder what I would be like in that environment. So it's a kind of two levels of curiosity. The one is about just going out into that place. And yes, I tend to, you know, have a mountain peak in mind because that kind of helps you go in a straight line rather than go in circles. It gives you a, a focus, a direction of travel. But I'm actually interested in being in the environment. And then when it comes to how will I be in that environment, yes, part of me is hoping that it'll all be fine and the sun will shine and the snow conditions will be perfect and we'll romp our way to the top. But I also acknowledge that those expeditions are fun in the moment, but pretty fairly easily forgettable afterwards, because you know it, it was easy, it was straightforward. The expeditions that stick in my mind are the ones where it all went wrong, and then I had to draw on all that training I've done, and then who I am as a person, and see if I can get that to come together. And it's not as if every time has been some brilliant success story and, oh, my God, I have such depths of capacity. Some, it's also involved sitting down and bursting into tears and being nasty to my teammates because I was stressed and, and feeling panicky and out of control. And it's like, OK, well, that's who I am as well. And, you know, it comes with a package. I can't, you know, stop being that. But what I can do is understand what triggers that, look at how I could back my way out of that particular dead end and you know what I could do another time to try and not end up in in, in quite that same place um and so what, it's interesting what, what, what interests me there Kathy is you're both curious about where you're about to go the the, the space that you're about to explore externally but also about what that's going to reveal about you internally when you get there and and uh, that kind of wanting to know how you'll rise to that challenge. And, and actually, what was really candid there was about how even if you don't, that that's actually in itself quite a, a, an interesting. It, it's not about conquering difficult things. It, it's also very interesting uh, to be curious about when you don't and, and what, how you can grow from that. Exactly. Yes. And I think it's actually quite affirming 
because at least in the things that have gone wrong in my life so far, uh, I've never completely given up on anything. So it's quite useful to understand that I can literally sit down, burst into tears, and still continue to be a competent mountaineer who can continue to problem solve and find a way out of this particular problem. So it's not as debilitating as one might think or as popular culture might tell us to be to be stressed and anxious and, and to break down and to be exhausted. The question is, can you kind of work your way through that situation, pick up the pieces and keep on trucking? And the other thing I've come to realize, uh, apart from understanding kind of my own weak points and therefore what I might do to bolster them and how I can work my way through them, is other solutions aren't always better. Yeah, without being too gendered, a woman who bursts, sits down and bursts into tears and is over it after five minutes has done a good deal less damage than a man who has chosen to pick a fight, a physical fight with another team member. And I have seen that. And yeah, that is not a great way to deal with acute stress and, and anxiety. I think bursting into tears is considerably more constructive as a way of releasing stress than hitting somebody else. So uh, the things we we put value on or denigrate aren't always the right things when it comes to, to dealing with difficult situations. But you kind of have to be in it to learn that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, Kathy. Well, um, I think we'll draw things to a close. It's really great to to get your perspectives on the, on the pandemic and uh, and and think about. What, uh, as frontline medics, what we can learn from you as mountaineers. Um, uh, there's, there's some really, really interesting lessons there. Um, is there anything else before we close that you wanted, wanted to, uh, any, any message that you'd like to give to the medics and indeed all the kind of key workers out there um, that are keeping things going through this, this difficult time? I have enormous admiration for everyone who's still out there as an essential worker, uh, fighting on the front line of this pandemic. The the crazy things I've chosen to do, I chose to do them. I know people go into the healthcare profession to kind of save lives, but nobody kind of imagined having to try and do that in the middle of a global pandemic where we don't even really understand uh, the enemy. And the fact that in these situations where people don't have control, they do have to go to work. They're essential workers. Everyone else is relying on them. And there's such pressure. There's such pressure and such confusion. And the fact that all of you are still going in there day after day, shift after shift, to do this work, that's amazing. You are a brilliant group of people, and I and everyone else who's just stuck doing our bit by having our bottoms parked on the sofa at home. (laughs) Thank you to all of you for everything that you're doing. Oh, that's great, Kathy. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. You have uh, a unique, almost stateswoman-like elegance when you speak. It's It's been a real pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. And if people want to connect with you, how can they do that? Uh, Instagram at Kathy O'Dowd, uh, my website, uh, kathyodowd.com. I've given up on Twitter, much too noisy. <laughs> So, yeah, one of those two. Great. Well, it's been great chatting to you. Thanks, Will.